Welcome to another episode of Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karras. Karis on Crime explores criminal justice issues and cases in the news. Send me your ideas and your questions. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karis on Crime, and my Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. Today, I'm doing the third interview in the case of Colleen McKernan. You may recall that Colleen shot her husband, Rob, on New Year's Eve in 2014, she says in self-defense. But the state of Ohio didn't believe that. They charged her with murder. Colleen went to trial twice, last year, 2016, and in both trials, jurors deadlocked. On the eve of her third trial, Colleen pled guilty to manslaughter and received a seven-year sentence. She could be out in half that time. Now, today's guest is Patricia. She was a juror at Colleen's second trial. My earlier interviews are with Colleen's father, Gary Owen, and her attorney at the second trial, Laura Mills. So I want to welcome you, Patricia, and thank you for agreeing to share your thoughts and experience as a juror in Colleen McKernan's case. Good morning. You're welcome. Had you ever served on a jury before? No. So what was this experience like for you? Uh, it was it was very, um, it was a learning experience. It was tough. It was tough. How so? Um, sometimes you go into something thinking it's going to be easy, it's going to be one, two, three, it's quick, we're going to be out, but there was so, so many different things, so much different evidence that it wasn't as cut and dry as a lot of people might have thought it was. All right, so we're going to get to that. So let me just ask a few more sort of basic questions about you. What do you do for work? I'm a correctional officer. Where? For the state of Ohio. And who do, who do you guard? I guard juveniles from the age of um, 10 to 21. And how long have you done that? Uh, over a year. And before that? Um, I was a, um, a shift manager for a local Dunkin' Donuts, and I was a full-time student going for my criminal justice degree. Oh, so being a corrections officer is, is really just it's a brand-new job, one year. Yes. Did you, I mean, did, did either side express any concern about you being a corrections officer, given that you were going to be sitting in judgment in a criminal case? No, they didn't. They were kind of glad um, that there were so many people on the jury that had some type of a criminal background. Like, like what? What other kinds of criminal backgrounds? Um, I think one had also been some type of, um, in a criminal field as far as like a uh, maybe a bailiff or something. Somebody else did some type of work. They didn't really get into too much of what they did um, okay. when we were being questioned. Okay. And at some point during jury selection, you learn that the defense was self-defense, an allegation of abuse on the part of the deceased against the accused, correct? Yes. And what what, what did you think when you heard that? Um, I thought that it was possible. Um, I didn't really have any thoughts going into it um, as far as I didn't have opinion based because I didn't really know any of the circumstances behind it. So I, I went in there with an open mind, as we were all supposed to, and, and I just kind of um, said, well, we'll see what happens. Well, that's exactly what jurors are supposed to have, an open mind and not have right. any any sort of preconceived notions just because a charge has been filed. Right. But a domestic violence allegation resonated with you. Can you explain why? 
Um, I have a, I have a past of domestic violence. Um, I know a lot of people that have past of domestic violence, so I know that everything is possible when it comes to relationships and what goes on behind closed doors. So I felt that um, having an open mind was very important in this case, and and knowing the things that could happen played a very big part in my decision. And we'll get to your decision uh, later on, because obviously you were in the second jury that also de deadlocked, so not everybody right. agreed. Uh, did you share the fact that you had domestic violence in your past with the lawyers in this case? Yes. In the beginning, when they questioned all of us um, about you know our past, when we filled out the paper, um, they had asked all of us if we had... Um, a past that included domestic violence, if we used a weapon, things like that. And in your situation, were you on the receiving end of the violence, or were you accused yes. of it? I was on the receiving end. And were any weapons used against you, or? No. Fists, no. fists, fists words? Yes. Fists, words, uh, mental, mental abuse, physical abuse. And how, how did you handle your situation? Um, it, it took a long time. I, I hit it for a long time. Um, then I, I talked to just a couple of people. And then at some point I left uh, in the middle of the night with our baby and went about 400, 600 miles on a Greyhound bus with a four-month-old baby to get away from him, knowing he wouldn't have the funds to come and find me. And is that indeed what happened? He did not come and find you? He did not come and find me, no. And it, and it was over after that? Yes, it was over. Had and you he had tried to commit suicide. Um, I got a phone call from his grandmother and stuff, but I, that's the, the ploy that they try to use to get you back, but it didn't work. I was done. Uh, you said this occurred over time. How long a time? Um, about five years. Oh, and you, but you waited till the baby was born to leave. Yeah. How did he handle your child? Um, he was very jealous of the baby. Um, there was a point that he threw him at me, and my son was probably about two weeks old because I was spending too much time with the baby and not enough time with him, which was what made my decision. It was more I didn't care about what he did to me, or at least that was my mindset at the time because I was young. But when it came to the baby, it was, he couldn't protect himself. So that was when I left. Was there any sort of police record, any uh, medical records that no. you left in your wake? Nope. I never called the police on him. Okay. So now I understand why Colleen McKernan's case resonated with you. Yes. So let's go to the trial. What yep. were your impressions of the lawyers in the case, both sides? Um, I I thought they were both, all four attorneys were great. The state and the defense attorneys, they were really nice um, in the beginning. Um, towards the end of the trial, I, I felt like the prosecute, prosecution side started to try to belittle her and... Um, scare her a little bit, intimidate her, if you will. Um, I thought at uh, one point the prosecutor 
was rude and he was he was becoming um I think he was kind of getting to all of us as far as he was talking really uh down about her or down to her and kept making these little snide remarks when he was making uh asking his questions and so we all started getting a little bit irritated with him. And when you say we all, you're talking about the other jurors. Yes, yes, most of the jurors. I pro- probably nine out of twelve of us were getting irritated with him. What were the thing? What, what were some of the things the jurors were saying? They were just saying that he was he was becoming a jerk, and that um, maybe they should have the other attorney asking the questions because it seemed like he was getting too a little bit too personal with her, like like he was getting a little too angry with her. Instead of just doing his job and, and asking the questions. This is all during Colleen's testimony when she testified in her own defense. Yeah, that and when he was questioning um, witnesses for her side, uh, Colleen's side, he was even kind of trying to intimidate the witnesses that were on her side as far as the um, the doctors and and one of the, the men that did a video um, of how the shooting could have occurred. Um, he was getting really um, nasty, I would say, to to a lot of the people that were the professionals and you know the experts in the case. What was your impression of the judge, Krista Hartnett? Um, you know, she was very, very nice in the beginning again, um, but then towards the middle of the trial, she seemed to be getting irritated with everything that um, the defense would bring up in the case. And there was a time, if I can remember right, that she started lecturing the defense side and we kind of, the whole jury kind of just looked at each other like, what is going on? Um, we thought, for me, I thought she was very nice, but I, I thought that since she was in the first trial that they should have had a different judge in the second trial and they didn't. I think that she had already had her mind up from the first trial of what she felt the verdict should have been. And what do you know about Chris Hartnett's background? Um, I know um, from what I heard, and I, you know, I didn't look it up, but a couple of the um, people I could hear saying that Judge Hart and um, the prosecutor, Mr. Barr, I believe his name was, were like the Bonnie and Clyde of defense uh, prosecution back in the day. So they have a background with each other. Um, as far as fighting uh, crime and, you know, and the justice system. So they, they know each other. They're, you know, they work together for a very long time. So, Yes, it has been uh, said sometimes that uh, a judge who's a former prosecutor can be like a, another prosecutor in the courtroom uh, if they don't, you know, make sure right. to just sort of toe the line and be down yeah. the middle. But judges are only human, and they do show uh, their biases for one side or the other. I've seen it. They come down on both sides. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's talk about the state's evidence. Uh, I mean, in any self-defense case, what the allegations are not, you know, the underlying facts are not in dispute because the person is saying, yeah, I did it, but I was defending myself. So I assume that the state's case was pretty cut and dried. I mean, right. Did anything jump out at you? I mean, he, she did shoot him 10 times. 
Right. She did say, and, you know, in, in part of the testimony and a video that we watched, she said, I told him if he if he put his hands on me one more, if he hit me again or put my, his hands on me one more time. And, you know, she never said that she didn't do it from day one. She said, I shot him. You know what I mean? She did. And, you know, that was never a question. We all knew that she did. But and, and they they said, well, we don't have to know why. We just have to know that she did it. Well, sometimes there is a why. Um, and, and maybe people don't think there should be a why, but sometimes there's legitimate reasons why there is a why on why somebody gets shot and killed and, and so forth. Well, when you're asserting self-defense, you know, there is a why. So the right, state right. may have said you don't need to know why, but the defense is like, we're going to tell you why. Right. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about Colleen's testimony. You, you needed to hear from her. Yes. We didn't hear very much from, from Colleen. She wasn't on the stand for very long. That was when I felt like the prosecutor was um, intimidating her a lot. And, and she seemed very, she was scared. I mean, who wouldn't be? Um, but again, I was just trying to listen to the testimony, uh, trying to figure out the type of person she seemed to be. It was tough. She wasn't on the stand for very long, but throughout the whole trial, I was looking over at her, seeing the expressions on her face. But it had been almost two years that it happened, but you could still see that it was hurting her. You know what I mean? It still still seemed like it was bothering her. So what do you remember about the actual incident, what, how it was described? Um... I can kind of do a play-by-play in my head on how realistically it probably happened and that's kind of the way I was visioning in my mind once all of the evidence was brought forth I mean I felt like she had a legitimate reason to do what she did I mean you have to be in fear of serious injury or death in order to yes. use fatal force yeah and you and believe I think Oh, I believe I definitely believe that she was in that fear um, and, and dr drinking alcohol. And I've never been a drinker, really, so I don't know. Um, but I do know that um, you don't when you're in that type of fear, you don't remember a lot of things that go on. You're, it's just kind of like a fight or flight kind of thing. You're going to protect yourself any means possible. And when you get to that, you don't remember everything that happens or goes on and you know, and, and I think that's what happened in that house that night. I think that maybe th more things went on that she just couldn't remember. And, you know, you can only go by the evidence and, you know, put real realistic things okay, and so see how it could happen. Let's go over a couple of the facts. First of all, they had met in the fall of 2013, married in April of 2014, and by New Year's Eve that same year, eight months later, Rob is dead. Now, uh, they were in their 20s still, in their late 20s, uh, both discharged from uh, the service. She was uh, in the Air Force, honorably discharged. He was discharged, although I guess it wasn't honorably. Uh, although they didn't know each other there. They met um, outside of the Air Force. Uh, there was a gun in the house, which was licensed, legal to her. Yeah. And uh, she claims that they were at a party at New Year's Eve. 
She went outside and saw that he was about to snort a line of cocaine or what she thought might have been cocaine or some white powder substance and got very upset and they left, right? Yes. And they go home. That was around 11 o'clock. Ten minutes later, he's dead. So do you recall what she said happened when they got, when they drove up to the house? She, what she said happened was that he pulled her out of the car, that she didn't have enough time to even open her door, that he was, he was very angry. He was in a rage. He got out of his side of the car. He went over to her side. Um, he carried her from the vehicle, which probably wasn't even very far, probably 50 feet maybe. Um, he pushed her up against the side of the house where the door was so that he could open the screen door and push her in. And then uh, they fought going all the way up the stairs, which is a split ranch. So there's only like probably eight or nine steps going, and, and then they were fighting from that point on. And then she went to the bedroom, yeah. grabbed the gun, and where was he? He was in the kitchen or coming towards her in the hallway. Um, I believe he was coming towards her in the hallway. I believe that he, he took her phone from her, um, and then he left the bedroom, and then um, she had grabbed the phone, and then I think that's when it all happened. He was in the hallway. Now, she says she just grabbed the gun to protect herself so right. she could get by him and out the door because she had to right. get by him to get out the door. Yes. Was he brandishing a weapon when he came at her? And I know the, the hallway was apparently narrow. Was he? Did he have a weapon? No, he didn't have a weapon. Did she say anything to him? She, I, from what I believe, what I remember, she kept telling him to back up, back up, Rob, back up. And and he didn't. And he didn't. And then what happened? Um, and apparently um, there became a point where she started shooting him and, because she couldn't get out. She couldn't get out of the house. She couldn't leave. And that was the only means of egress was through that door. Um, in that hallway, and um, he's much larger than she was, um, and that hallway was only probably about maybe 36 inches wide, so her trying to get by him just wasn't going to happen, and she just shot him, and she just kept shooting until there were no more bullets left in the clip. Ten shots, two in the yeah. mouth. Uh, four more in his front and his torso, and then his body must have spun. And then there's yes. there's three in the left back and one in the right buttocks. Ten shots. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. And that to you sounded like it, it, it could have it happened the way she says. Yes. Okay. Yes. What did the other jurors think? Um, you know, in the, when the first time that we were all talking about it, it a lot of them uh, felt that it happened that way. Um, we all said, well, it's possible, you know, where they were so close to each other. Um, she just kept shooting and shooting. You know, we thought that it was possible. All of us did. Uh, probably two of them, two or three of the women, and it w were women that didn't. Uh, uh, it was two, I'm sorry, it was two women, one, one man 
that um, from the beginning of the trial just didn't didn't seem to want to listen to the evidence and, and felt that no matter how it happened, she shouldn't have shot him. So, um, yeah, so, it, it was rough. So, so three of the 12, two women and one man, were always mm-hmm. going to vote guilty. Right. And what was the gender breakdown of your jury? Um, it was, uh, let me see, there were, I believe it was, let me see, one... I think it was three men, four men. There were four men and the rest were women. It's time for a break. You're listening to Karis on Crime. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karis, and I'm speaking with Patricia, who was the jury foreperson in the second trial of Colleen McKernan. What was the final vote, though? I believe it was two, uh, it was a hung jury. It was two not guilty, and the rest were guilty. And, and what were you? Which I was not guilty. I felt that she, I, I felt that she was not guilty. I felt she had, she had me, she had a reason, um, enough of a reason for me for it to be self-defense. And nothing could have changed your mind? Not really. Um, just, just the evidence, and you know, um, probably being in that situation. Maybe if I hadn't been in that situation before, and I wasn't even using um, my experience, I just the reality of things that could happen were what I was basing um, my opinion on. Too, it wasn't only the evidence, but it was things that could have possibly happened instead of just the, the evidence that was, was giving. So you had a reasonable doubt about the state's case. Right. Yeah, there, there, was a lot, there was a lot of doubt for me. What was it about Colleen that, um, that you believed? Because other people just weren't going to believe anything that came out of her mouth. Right. Um, to me, when you're put in that situation, and to me, Colleen is a very dependent, independent, strong strong woman and you could see that so for somebody with that type of a personality to stay in that type of um, relationship I knew that she had to have loved him and I knew there had to be a whole lot more to it that we weren't hearing about um, the whole case so just something about her and her testimony and just the different things that we were here in the courtroom just for me, I felt like she had a reason, and, and, you know, she might not like what happened in the end, but it, it happened, and she did what she thought she had to at the time. What did you learn as a jury during the trial, not afterwards, but during the trial, about prior instances of abuse or allegations of abuse by Rob against Colleen? You know, the thing that... That bothered me a lot was that his um, past wasn't brought up. Very little of his past was brought up. Um, And we didn't know, you know, what he was like. We'd only heard from a couple of his friends, but they never said anything negative because, of course, they were his friends. Um, We we knew that he did use a little bit of drugs, um, but, you know, that, that he was a big drinker. 
obviously at eight thirty in the morning you're you're no matter what shift you work, you know, if that's a if it's a normal occurrence for you to be going to your mom's house at eight thirty in the morning, you, you may have a problem with alcohol. So I, I thought that he had a problem. I thought that just his family life, um, with the way that the mother was on the stand, how she was, that maybe they might not have been the, the ideal American family. What was his mother like on the stand? Um, she acted like drinking wasn't a big deal. You know what I mean? She acted like um, she acted like there was no no problem. But then she, you know, when he did get shot and they did find out, and I, I, if I remember right, she made the comment she should have just shot him in the leg. Well. She knew that there was a problem in their relationship, but then all of a sudden, you know, when this happened, she acted like he didn't do anything wrong. So I know I, I, I'm. She knew that there was a, a issue of of some type of uh, domestic abuse in that household, and she just didn't want to say it. Hmm. Did any of the jurors comment about her as well? Yeah, we kind of all thought that she may not have been. Oh, the American mother, you know, the American mom, that she may have had issues herself. And uh, so we kind of looked at her, too, you know, for for a little bit of Rob's personality. But Colleen must have testified about some instances of abuse if she also said, I told him the next time he laid his hands on me. Yeah. What, that yeah, she was going to kill did. him? Yeah, she um she did when we were listening and we were watching the video from the um police department and the booking room I believe she was sitting and she in uh no she wasn't she was standing in the cell in the jail cell and she she was crying and she said I told him if he put his hands on me again I was going to kill him. Yeah, so she did say that and then she had spoken about an incident where he um was choking her in the bed when she was sleeping, that he had come home, and something happened, and he had uh, put his hands around her throat, and she woke up in the shower, um, and he was apologizing, saying he was sorry, and he was sorry. Um, And then another incident where their family dog had actually bit him because she was laying on the couch, and uh, he had gone over to her on the couch, and he was doing something. I can't remember if he was squeezing her or grabbed her or what, but their family dog, which he was only a puppy at the time, um, had bit him. So you know that something had to have happened if your own family dog's going to bite you when you go in there, a family member, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So um, she had mentioned a couple of instances of abuse, um, but, you know, it's, I don't know how many of the jurors believe that, you know what I mean? Was there any police record? Um, At one point, she had called the police from her neighbor's house, but then um, nothing had happened. I guess there was no no arrest or anything, just when the police called back, she was like, no, everything's good. been a minute since we went to the trial, so I'm trying to think back. I think that was a that was about it. She she didn't really call the police, you know. 
So do you understand why the state, though, brought murder charges, or do you think they should have um, not or brought lesser charges? Um, I think that the Maslin Police Department did a crappy job in their investigation. I think that they should have looked more into it before they even filed charges for murder against her because they did that that same night. Um, they didn't do very much. I thought it was very poor police uh, work done to investigate it. Um, I think maybe, if anything, manslaughter in the beginning, but instead it went through two trials, both, you know, a hung jury on both. I think they should have gone maybe with um, manslaughter instead of murder. How divided was the community over this case? Was it as divided as the jurors were? Well, it's funny because I didn't remember it, and it's probably because I go to work so early in the morning, and so I didn't really remember anything about the case at all. But then as um, we weren't allowed to talk about it, even to our family, so it was hard. But then at the end um, of the trial of my family, they were like, oh, my family was just as split as the jury. You know, my, my sister-in-law was like, no, she's guilty, it doesn't matter, and then my brother-in-law will know, you know, if he was beaten on her, you know what I mean? So it was, I think the community was probably just as um, divided. It was tough. It's definitely tough. So in the end, when she took a plea to manslaughter, she took a plea to the charge you, you say maybe should have been brought in the first place and not murder. Mm-hmm. How did you react to learning that she admitted it and uh, admitted to the facts and also took a seven-year sentence? Um, it broke my heart because I felt like if 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 people understood what goes on in a domestic relationship like that, they they would have been more understanding to it. They would have seen that the things that happened were very possible. Um, it just you know I really felt like she was defending herself. She did the best that she could to defend herself. And it just broke my heart. But, I mean, if she did what she wanted to do, um, and I think it was more so financially why she took the plea. And, and honestly, I think I would have taken a plea, too, at that point because, gosh, it had been going on the third trial. That girl was uh, on house arrest. Um, it's very expensive. She couldn't work. The only place that she could go, really, was to her attorney's office. So, I mean, it broke my heart, but then I understood why she took the plea, um, I don't think they would have ever been able to convict her. I don't think either way. I, I don't think they could have completely exonerated her or completely said that she was guilty 100%. I think it was just one of those cases that no matter what, we nobody will ever know what happened except for Rob and Colleen. But in your in your mind, I mean, there there was reasonable doubt, and you wouldn't oh. have been comfortable if she walked scot free. I don't. I I don't know about that. I mean, I would have been comfortable with her walking scot free. Yes, mm-hmm. I would have. You don't see her as a danger to the community. No, not at all. No, I don't. 
she's not a danger to society at all, as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion. Absolutely not. You know, I know you're assigned to guard juveniles, but I suppose since you're new in the job, you've only been at it a year, there's a chance you're going to move within the system. I mean, do you suppose there's a chance that you could actually be sent to the facility where Colleen is? Um, probably if I, if I applied there, I could. I could definitely because, you know, I work for the state, so I could go to any facility, yes. And where is she? Um, I'm not, is it Lorraine? She might be Lorraine. I'm not positive on where she went. I don't know where women are housed in Ohio, if, if it's one or two facilities. Oh, you know what? I think it's Marysville. Okay. It may be Marysville. Is that far from you? Um, I don't, I'm not really sure where it is. I, I'm assuming it's a couple of hours because um, there are not um, any adult facilities in this area. Oh, that's too far for you to travel. Right, yeah. I'm like 10 minutes from my job here, so I would probably never go there unless I got a better opportunity as far as, uh, you know, unit manager or operations or something. Did you speak to any of the attorneys on both sides after the uh, deadlock? We, uh, I did not speak to the prosecution side. I spoke to the defense side. And we spoke to, the judge came in and spoke to us in the jury room at the end. What did the judge have to say? Well, she brought up a couple of facts um, that were in the trial as far as uh, one of the defenses that they had claimed um, in the second trial. She said, would it help you change your mind if we told you that this defense wasn't... um, used in the first trial and they used it in the second trial and um that that was about the dissociative state when you're pulling the yeah. trigger and you can't remember yes the okay. dissociative state she said would it help that they didn't use that defense in the middle you know in the first trial but they used it in the second trial um just a couple of things you could you could tell that um the judge was more so on the prosecution prosecution side of the trial that she had already, she knew, you know, what she felt to be true. She had already made up her mind. Hmm. It's interesting. It'd be interesting if the judge knew that, um, you know, you thought these things and had this, and that the jury or many of the jurors had this impression that she was one-sided. Right. That's not what judges are supposed to be like, but you know, she was, she's, she's a fairly new judge. I believe I, I, I met her years ago when she was uh, prosecuting a case I covered at court TV Right. I mean, uh, she was very, very nice, but you could tell, you know, what her, what her verdict would have been if, it, if she'd have been, if there was no jury and she was the, the sitting judge and she had to make the decision, she would definitely have, uh, Colleen would have been in jail for a very long time. You know, sometimes in especially long cases, I know this was not that long, but in long cases, jurors really bond and uh, they they establish a friendship that stays with them for some time, if not for the rest of their lives. Did you bond with any of the other jurors? Um, Just one. uh, One other female. Uh, She's very nice. We're on Facebook. We don't talk a lot, but like we'll like each other's uh, statuses or we'll comment on each other's page. But you know, we both felt the same way. Um, we we both pretty much had the same reasoning. Um, we got pretty close. So, yeah, she was about the only one. Is she the other acquitting juror? Yes. I see. Well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> right. 
All right. Well, you know, this is very interesting. I want to thank you, Patricia, for joining me today. I'm always fascinated to speak with a juror in a case that I either tried or uh, covered uh, as a reporter. Uh, you just learn so much. They say there's no greater mind than the collective mind of 12 jurors. But in this case, uh, the 12 could not uh, be one of one mind. And I, I do understand you know, where you're coming from. Yeah. You're probably right that the community would have had a hard time finding 12 jurors to agree, although they were close in your case, 10 to 2. It was yeah. pretty close. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. Well, I want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of Karis on Crime. I welcome your feedback, your questions and ideas. As always, you can post them on Twitter. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karis and at Karis on Crime. And you can also find me on Facebook on the page with my name, Beth Karis. And until the next time, be well.